You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this edition of our RSAC 365 podcast series. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Casey Zirkus, with the RSA Conference team. Our content theme for the month of November is API security, and today we're talking with Richard Bird, CSO at Traceable, and Chase Cunningham, VP Security Market Research at G2, about whether you can actually have zero trust without API security. And now I'd like to ask Richard and Chase to take a moment to introduce themselves before we dive into today's topic. Chase, over to you. Uh, sure. So thanks for having me on there. Yeah, I am currently the uh, VP of Security Market Research at G2. Uh, so that's uh, what I'm doing to pay the bills right now. I'm a retired Navy chief. I was a, uh, a former crypto guy with uh, different agencies, and I've been fortunate enough to work at Forrester Research as well. Uh, yeah, Casey, great to be on. My name is Richard Bird. I'm the Chief Security Officer for Traceable. A bit of an odd quantity in the security solutions side. I've been doing um, security solutions work now for about five or six years, but for 20 plus years, I was on the corporate side of the equation, worked a lot in banking, used to be the global head of identity for JP Morgan Chase's consumer businesses, been a CISO and a CIO. So I bring a lot of the practitioner's experience to the table as it relates to how to secure organizations. Awesome. Well, we are excited to have both of you with us. So thanks for joining me today. I want to start by hearing from each of you about the origins of Zero Trust as it relates to network and infrastructure security so that our listeners can understand why API security even matters. Chase, can we start with you? Uh, Sure. So the basic concept for Zero Trust came from uh, John Kindervog a number of years ago around 2010 when he came up with the article called No More Chewy Sinners, which was really talking about the need to focus on the internal sort of machinations of what makes systems work because we have these inherent trust relationships and that causes uh, avenues of compromise that prove to be continually beneficial for the bad guys. So that was where John's kind of uh, uh, original idea and concept there came. And then from there on, it's evolved into this industry sort of uh, standard approach to the problem of how do you eliminate the adversary's ability to be successful inside of a system. And where we see it today is ZT is a uh, global initiative that's being adopted by a lot of governments and a lot of businesses and a lot of vendors. So it's uh, evolved pretty far from John's uh, original idea. Awesome. Richard, any additional thoughts to add to that? Well, Chase obviously does a great job of explaining Zero Trust Framework. Um, And I'm always one to quickly point out that I was a non- zero trust believer in the early days and a lot of that had to do with my background being in the enterprise side where i felt that the idea of eliminating trust from our systems and networks was extremely problematic i'd like to say that i was obviously convinced in the opposite direction uh, by great thought leaders in the zero trust space uh, chase and and john and a number of other folks and what really was the changing point for me that i think is important to understand about zero trust is first of all it has a history that goes long before the forester research that john did uh, that yielded what became the beginnings of zero trust for us Um, and that history is associated with identity and access control and the way that security used to work for mainframe systems was very zero trust like And I think that we've lost the foundations of 
security as it relates to operating in a zero trust manner is simply because there's been this rush to greatness for monetization and the internet and get everybody's data while you can and all these different mechanisms have really defeated what we already knew were great security principles and, and approaches. So I think it's important to understand that zero trust is um, not something that arose up out of isolation. It rose from our experiences and understanding. And I think the other is, is that I always start with the same conversation. If you want to get started with zero trust, eliminate implied and persistent trust in your systems. And if you disagree with that position, let me ask how well is uh, unlimited trust and unlimited persistent trust working out for you? Uh, because it is one of the key reasons that companies get breached and hacked today. Just out of curiosity, do you feel that there are still those that are skeptics as you were admittedly <laughs> several years ago? And that's why you felt like, you know, posing that important question of, you know, how how is it serving you <laughs> to assume trust? Yeah, I think there are a tremendous number of skeptics. And, and to be honest, some of this is self-inflicted, not, you know, from the zero trust community, but um, from the mixed messages that came out relative to the evolution of zero trust and Google's position of creating Beyond Corp. And I always kind of go back to, if you want to understand why there might be skepticism or resistance to zero trust, go back to the horizon event of Google uh, coming out with Beyond Corp. And John clearly has stated multiple times um, in, in hard quotation marks that trust is a human emotion. It does not belong in a digital environment. And Beyond Corp came out with a reference architecture that you can still access today that in the middle has what's called a trust engine. So what's <laughs> which direction do you go? Do you have a trust mm -hmm. engine or does trust not belong within your environment, your systems, your assets uh, and your data at all? And I think that that really set up the tension for concerns that a lot of it was just marketing, which is not true. A lot of solution providers coming to market and say, we have a zero trust solution, when in reality with a framework where a security uh, guideline, what you're trying to do is achieve a zero trust outcome. And you know, somebody said to me just recently in a speaking engagement, I said, hey, look, like, I get it if you don't believe in zero trust. And a hand went up in the audience and the gentleman said, well, because it's really complicated. And I said, interesting. I said, how much less complicated is defense in depth? And he paused for a second. He said, that's a fair point, right? And I, I, I get a little bit frustrated that we use this, it's complicated as a rationalization for not trying new things within security uh, because look, it's always gonna be complicated and, right. and it's always going to be difficult and it's always gonna be complex. And if we want an easy version of security, we missed that boat about 40 years ago. Yes, but human beings are averse to change, right? Change is hard. It means being adaptable. And sometimes our environments and organizations don't always allow for that, right? So, um, yeah, I would say, though, I don't disagree with you at all. And since I'm an identity person, I live in the land of organizational and psychological behaviors um, more than most security people do. Um, but I think that if change is difficult, self-denial and a lack of self-awareness makes it more difficult. Right. And I think that that's part of the problem that we're not you know, really addressing, which is if we think that our security frameworks are working, but the numbers and the data and the hockey stick curve of cyber losses and cyber crimes continues to grow, where is that cognitive dissonance? Right. right. If we don't change, how do we address that? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The human element is really critical to, you know, augmenting the overall security strategy for the organization, for sure. Um, you mentioned that zero trust is a framework and the goal is a zero trust outcome. So 
How has this framework evolved? You you got into a little bit of, you know, what started with Google and Beyond Corp, but how has it evolved over the last few years? Uh, well, we have a formalized framework that we published back in 2017, 2018, which was the Zero Trust Extended Ecosystem. And basically what that framework did was give vendors a place to try and kind of align their technology into that tied into the strategy of zero trust. And then on top of that, now you've got organizations like the Cloud Security Alliance, the U.S. government, NIST, that are all putting together their own uh, flavors of that original uh, framework so that there is kind of a, a, a broader market consensus on what you can do and how it fits into that. And that has been very beneficial for people to understand is, number one, Zero Trust is a strategy and it is applicable to your business. You do ZT however you want to do it. There is no from on high, thou shalt only do this thing. However, there are best practices, there are frameworks, there are logical matrices that can be used to help people get things in the right place. And the, the only other thing that really fits into that is that there's been an acceptance of the fact that this is a, a uh, approach that will take time. If you spent 30 years building your infrastructure, you're not going to be ZT in 30 days. Uh, just to what you and Richard were talking about before on the whole aversion to change thing. I mean, that's why gym memberships are sold from January to March because nobody wants to go to the gym for more than a month. It's just because it's uncomfortable and people realize how quickly it sucks to have to work out to get healthy. But you either do that and grit through it and get to the other side or you don't and you stay exactly where you are. That's literally the only choice. And annoy the heck out of all those people that go to the gym 12 months a year, right? Because <laughs> everyone's yeah, there much. in January. Unless they're CrossFitters and then those people are weird anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> You talked about Cloud Security Alliance and all these different infrastructures, and I'd love to maybe explore how a zero-trust strategy would apply to organizations with hybrid or multi-cloud infrastructures versus traditional network infrastructures. What's different or what should be different in their approaches, and what's the same from a security strategy perspective? So real quickly, because I know Richard's got some really good insights on this, I would just say that the the whole thing is to align on the, the sameness, if you will, of making sure that you have an accepted end state that you're trying to get to, stakeholders that are bought in and an overall strategic initiative, and then you drive forward to that. Whether you're cloud, on-prem, off-prem, servers on a boat floating around the Atlantic Ocean, like it doesn't matter, really that's how you're going to approach the problem. And then you continually realign as you get small victories. Don't try and solve for big giant problems all at once because that's really not attainable and no one likes to solve for things that they don't achieve. Be small, be tactics uh, driven, and those tactics that are in front of you will ultimately enable the strategy. Yeah, I would definitely, you know, add to what Chase is saying with, uh, you know, more of that old practitioner's approach, which is we tend to talk about cloud and multi-cloud strategies and hybrid in, in a way that silos every one of those assets, right? I, I'm using this cloud service provider and then my backup cloud sort of service provider is here, as opposed to this is our infrastructure now, right? It, it, the whole stack, whether it's managed by us directly or it's managed uh, by a, a service provider is now our infrastructure reality. This is the way that we deploy and the way that we achieve business value. And we have to have a security overlay that encompasses it all. And I will say that it, it's very obvious that Zero Trust Federation across a diverse 
infrastructure stack uh, or a hybrid infrastructure stack is relatively non-existent. And it's not entirely because of a lack of security strategy on the part of the companies that we're talking about. Um, it's the inconsistencies between the cloud service providers themselves. Um, there is no federated security layer that allows us to navigate across the three big CSPs. And as a result, we have differing levers and differing techniques. And in some cases, we just have flat out exposure uh, to those cloud service providers' own security practices. And I, I think until we start taking the much higher level holistic uh, view and the holistic overlay of zero trust across our entire infrastructure uh, landscape, uh, we're, we're going to see uh, these capitalizable gaps that the bad guys are taking advantage of. And so when we talk about this holistic layer, right, we're talking about including the API layer into the security strategy. So what are some best practices for this holistic and resilient security? Right out of the gate, knowing what you're facing is a best practice. And this is such a huge gap. We've, we've done a number of studies and it's a bit shocking in my career in technology, I have never experienced a time where there was such a substantial cognitive dissonance gap between two verified and data supported truths. Um, the first verified and data supported truth is, I know, and we have heard this from thousands of companies, I know that APIs represent a, a risk to my organization, a risk to my revenue, a risk to my uh, credibility, a risk to my operations, but then when the following question is, is, and do you have an API security program in place? The answer is no. And what a huge gap that is. I recognize, I certify, I attest to the fact that I have a big exposure, unmitigated risk, and I have nothing that I'm doing other than tools that the numbers clearly show are also considered to be substandard in API security, relying upon a WAF and a gateway as a great example of this with the assumption that all of my APIs are transacting at the edge, which is not the case. Um, and also not taking into account things like third-party access, commercialized APIs. So it's very much nascent days in the API security space. The problem is, is that the amount of business value that can be achieved in terms of extracting it from stranded assets and resources and databases and process and flows is rapidly exploding the API attack surface while the answer to whether I have API security in place is still no. And first and foremost, you just need to understand what you have. So catalog and discovery and inventory and risk assessment, like every other security problem that we've had in the past, um, is the starting point. Those are the same starting points that we had for data classification, for firewall rule validation, for virtual machine counts. We've seen this before, and we need to accept the fact that this is a pattern that we've seen in the past, and we need to apply those best practices that we've used in the past to close those security gaps rapidly. So before we wrap up, I'd love it if I could hear from each of you on what you see as the future of Zero Trust and how the latest reference architecture serves to guide security practitioners. Chase, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think the evolution of ZT is really starting to come together where we're going to see the uh, kind of uh, tying in of small and mid-sized businesses that are also getting into zero trust because of our kind of combination of requirements, whether it's legal or GRC stuff from their 
uh, corporate overlords and say that this is how you have to do this if you want to do business with us and they will align on that because it's basically how they're going to keep getting contracts and funding going and then there's the other side of it where all the technologies that are out there that are available from vendors are kind of in this rubik's cube sort of approach right now where they're mapping together and aligning on each other to solve the problem and enable the strategy and in the very near future it's going to be uh, the argument about folks saying that this is hard or difficult or not attainable or whatever else, it's no longer going to be valid between policy engines and cloud uh, and self-learning systems. You're no longer, and I would say before 2030, going to be able to say we can't enable this type of strategic approach because the solutions, the technologies, the mandates, the legal requirements are going to make it both required and possible. All of Chase's observations are spot on, but when I look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, I, I go back to, we, we all in the Zero Trust community shamelessly quote um, John uh, Kinderbag, and we have to give him an attribution for that. But I was on a stage with John, uh, this is a couple of years ago, when I really had my own lenses and aperture changed about Zero Trust. And John stood up and he waved his hand at a slide, and he said, and when we achieve Zero Trust, we will drive security to layer seven by policy. And this is exactly where I think the evolution is coming because I was shocked when he said it. I realized that um, having been an app dev director and having had experience in all different forms of technology, that this ultimate virtualization layer of layer seven, being able to transact everything on the web across all of these assets, um, creates the possibility of us actually doing zero trust in all other subsequent layers of the stack and locking them down. Uh, except now the exploit surface becomes this layer seven. And it is a layer where there has been very little um, in the way of security innovation, um, security discipline. So we're driving everything you know, into this layer, which means that, and, and Chase referenced it, uh, which means that technologists as well as regulators are really clearly starting to understand that these unprotected APIs, these unknown numbers of APIs, uh, represent a massive amount of risk, not just to companies and agencies and organizations, but frankly to national critical infrastructure, uh, which is why you're seeing banking regulators get very, very specific about APIs. I think that trend continues over the course of the next 24 to 36 months, and I think we see some uh, prescriptive regulatory demands, which is relatively rare in the United States, uh, to tell people how they have to do things. And I think we start to see action and energy because ultimately APIs are the universal attack vector. But the upside to this is it's not all gloom and doom. If they represent a universal attack vector, they have the possibility of being the universal protect surface as well. And if we can get really, really good at protecting what's going on in that layer, we will just simply make zero trust much better in terms of its outcomes for making the digital world safer for human beings, which is, you know, hopefully ultimately that's everybody who's involved in security. That's our mission. Indeed, that's certainly ours, right? Uh, so I appreciate very much both of you joining me today to engage in this conversation. And listeners, hopefully you had some great takeaways that uh, can help you in your journey. To find products and solutions related to API security, we invite you to visit rsaconference.com forward slash marketplace. Here you'll find an entire ecosystem of cybersecurity vendors and service providers who can assist with your specific needs. Richard and Chase, thank you again so much for being here with us. 
Listeners, please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year round. Until next time.